0: Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Titan Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name is Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay, more or less. Had kind of a stressful day at work the other day. Uh, In the parking lot of the theater where I work, a tree fell on a car specifically my car, which was mostly fine, but also on the car next to it, which was kind of fine except for that it broke off the mirror on the side of the car. Now the entire reason that I bring this anecdote up is because I tried to describe that mirror on the side of the car as the rear view mirror. I was immediately corrected and informed that that is in fact called the side view mirror, which fine. I guess technically that is what some people call it. But here's the thing, If you think about it, every mirror is a rear-view mirror. If it was a front-view mirror, it would just be a window. So, from now on, I'm going to call the windshield of my car the front-view mirror. I think the real takeaway from this story is that if you hear me say the phrase, if you think about it, it's probably safe to stop listening. Because I am about to do some elaborate semantic gymnastics to prove that I have not in fact made a mistake. But you didn't come here to hear me talk about something that happened in the parking lot at my work. Oh, although one time I did see a guy just standing around playing a flute there. That seemed oddly sinister. You came here to hear me blather on and on about a comic book. So, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's Synopsis Rhyme is submitted by Devin Tuhey. Namor may wear capes, but he will always go topless. Abslantis won't be covered, but comics will. In a synopsis, synopsis. Well done, Devon. Thank you. Defenders, number fifty-three, November nineteen seventy-seven. The Power Principle, Part One: The Prince and the Presence, written by David Anthony Kraft, and Don McGregor, and Ed Hannigan, and John Warner. Drauded by Keith Giffen, and Dave Cockrum, and Michael Golden. Inked by Terry Austin, all by himself. Lettered by Joe Rosen, colored by Phil Rash, and edited by Archie Goodwin. Defensive lineup Namor the Submariner, Hellcat, Nighthawk, The Incredible Hulk, Valkyrie, and Clea. Previously in The Defenders. After facing down cosmic space monsters, evil wizards, interstellar cult leaders, and a cadre of crazily craniumed criminals, Valkyrie decided to face her most daunting foe to date, the bureaucracy of the college enrollment process. Val's first attempt to navigate the labyrinth of Empire State University's admission department proved fruitless, so the sorcerously Scandinavian swordslinger sought solace in a cup of coffee at a campus cafe. Some film students approached Val and asked her to accompany them to a nearby cinema. Never having seen a movie before, the academically aspirational Asgardian agreed and found the experience enthralling. While enjoying a post-film pastry, the makeshift movie club struck up a conversation with an arrogant academic named Professor Turk, who seemed very interested in the trio's opinion of a campus vigilante named Lunatic with a K. Speaking of vigilantes, the scarlet swashbuckling Soviet superhero the Red Guardian, a.k.a. neurosurgeon Dr. Tanya Belinsky, had quit the defenders and returned to Russia after receiving some unsettling threats to her family's safety. Upon arriving in Moscow, the crimson-cowled communist crime fighter was greeted at the airport by a former KGB agent who represented a secret organization bearing the mysterious moniker, Codename Sergei. Tanya was escorted to the group's subterranean lair where she was introduced to the leader of the shadowy cabal, a creepy scientist named Sergei. So Codename Sergei was founded by actual name Sergei. What a coincidence! Unfortunately, what the Slavic scientist lacked in imaginative naming powers he more than made up for in creepy mind control powers. Sergei used his Soviet super science to subsume the Red Guardian's free will. Once she was under his mental thrall, codenamed Sergei's eponymous leader continued to demonstrate his villainous bona fides by expounding on his sinister schemes in an obligatory exposition dump. Turned out that Sergei had done a bunch of mad scientist nonsense that had given him superpowers and made him radioactive. When he wasn't subjecting himself to various nuclear experiments, the non-OSHA compliant creep had been cyber-stalking Tanya, or seeing as it was the 70s, probably microfish stalking Tanya, and had decided that he wanted her to be his mate. Gross! Now the reprehensible radioactive Russian had the object of his unreciprocated affection in his clutches, and he intended to juice her up with the same plutonium powers he had. When the process was complete, Sergei and his sphengalied-up superheroine would stand in the middle of a nuclear explosion that would destroy a sizable portion of Eastern Europe and get even more powerful. What a terrible plan from a terrible person. And in addition to the intended shitty consequences, code name slash actual name Sergei's shitty plan was having some shitty unintended consequences as well. For the radiation resulting from the Soviet scientists' subterranean tests was leaking into the ocean and poisoning the undersea city of Atlantis. Oh no! When he was apprised of his people's plight, Namor the Submariner, ruler of Atlantis, was furious. More so than usual, even. To combat the contamination of his constituents, the subaquatic sovereign headed to New York to seek support from the superhero community. But, before he got the chance to plead his case, the abdominally adroit amphibious adventurer bumped into the Incredible Hulk. Predictably, the two shirt-eschewing, irascible former non-teammates proceeded to pummel one another in a mandatory superhero. Misunderstanding, trademark. Eventually, Nighthawk and Hellcat managed to intervene and become both the Bounding Behemoth and the Pugilism-prone Prince. When Namor explained his people's predicament, Nighthawk, Hellcat, and the Hulk agreed to accompany their aquatic ally back to Atlantis and try to defend his deep-sea domain. Gadzooks! Can Namor last an entire issue without angrily storming off and quitting the Defenders? Will our heroes thwart codename slash actual name Sergei's scheme before it reduces Romania to rubble? And with her teammates off on an underwater adventure, will Valkyrie vanquish villains of her own in their absence? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, yes, but to be fair, this issue is behind schedule, so the story's only 18 pages long. No. And not really, but she does ride the subway all by herself. Good for you, Val. Nighthawk, Namor, Hellcat, and the Hulk hop in a fancy Atlantean submarine and head to Atlantis. When they arrive, they are greeted with a lavish ceremonial banquet. As is likely the tradition in Atlantis, the meal ends when Namor stands up and dramatically shouts that he has no time for this elaborate feast. He must really be in a rush, because he skips over the part where he storms off angrily, abdicates the throne, gets amnesia, and then returns for dessert. Things must be pretty dire. That's usually his favorite part of any meal. All non-essential staff are cleared from the room. Apparently there's an implied custom that no women are allowed to be present during national security meetings, and everyone looks expectantly at Hellcat, assuming that she will leave with the entertainers and service workers. Boo! I guess the reason the phrase is smash the patriarchy instead of drown the patriarchy is it turns out that shit can breathe underwater. To her credit, Patsy is like, nah, I'm good here. You go ahead and do your little PowerPoint presentation. Hooray! Namor's chief advisor, an old beardy guy named Lord Vashti, strolls over to the overhead projector and addresses the assembled council members and super folks. He's like, gentlemen. And lady, shit's bad. Real bad. We're all going to die. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. When Vashti is done, Namor contributes. This is a terrible time for everyone to die. We've been through a lot lately, and I'm worried that the total extinction of my people will be a real morale problem for them. Um, yeah, good point. After everyone congratulates Namor on how smart and compassionate he is to notice that dying would probably bum out his constituents, they decide upon a plan of action. The Submariner and the Defenders will hop in a ship that has special shielding, head to the source of the contamination, and then... Uh, the details are a little hazy from there on out. I guess the Hulk is maybe gonna smash the radioactivity until it stops being so radioactive? Something like that. Everybody heads to their sleeping quarters to try to get some rest while their ship is tricked out with fancy shielding. And probably some rims as well. Namor likes to ride in style. Meanwhile, in a subterranean base far beneath the Soviet Union, named Sergei reiterates his shitty plan to set off a nuclear bomb that will blow up part of Romania and give he and Tanya atomic powers. A clearly mind-controlled Dr. Belinsky robotically repeats the words, That is a good plan. I love you, Sergey. Gross. Back in New York, Valkyrie has been unable to contact any of her non-teammates for the past few days, so she decides to hang out at the Sanctum Sanctimonious with Clea and have a cup of coffee. Val confides that she's a little worried about what happened to the other defenders, but mostly she's worried about trying to register for classes again. Clea gives her a little pep talk, and then magics the dishes away into oblivion, which Valkyrie takes as a not-so-subtle signal that it's time to go. Since her flying horse Aragorn is still in far-off Long Island, the aspiring undergrad Norse warrior takes the subway downtown to the campus of Empire State University. The other commuters crowd her, so she yells at them to back the fuck off. Reluctantly, they do so. Hooray! When she arrives at her stop, Val sees that campus security is chasing some asshole carrying a big metal stick, who is wearing clown makeup and a green tracksuit. Surmising that this scofflaw must be the violent vigilante lunatic with a K, who everyone at ESU has been so eager to talk about, Val trips him and says, no running. Once lunatic regains himself, he turns angrily to accost his assailant, but when he sees Valkyrie, a flash of recognition registers in his heavily made-up eyes. He grins, and runs off before security can apprehend him. Hmm. As Valkyrie prepares herself mentally to once again tilt at the windmills of academic bureaucracy, the rest of the defenders are preparing for a battle of their own. The tricked-out Atlantean ship is silent as it jets towards its destination, codenamed Sergei's base, the source of the atomic leakage that poses the existential threat to Namor's kingdom. Unbeknownst to the grimly contemplative quartet of crime fighters, Sergei is beginning the countdown to the detonation of his nuclear bomb. The Red Guardian struggles against her thought control and is briefly cognizant enough to question the wisdom of her captor's plan. But, all too quickly, Sergei tightens the mental bonds that keep Tanya so artificially pliant to his will, and she again acquiesces to his demands. Boo! Will the defenders be in time to stop the nuclear device from exploding on schedule? "'Nah, they won't. I already told you that at the beginning of this synopsis. "'The bomb detonates as planned, and the hull of the Defender's ship is breached "'and begins to flood with contaminated water. "'A headline informs us that an underground explosion triggered an earthquake "'which destroyed much of Romania and left hundreds, if not thousands, dead. "'From the epicenter of the fiery blast, a transformed codename Sergei emerges.' He is now wearing a shiny gold outfit with an elongated helmet and is brimming with the implied energy that Kirby Crackle connotes. The nefarious, now-nuclear ne'er-do-well informs us that he is now calling himself THE PRESENCE. Shitty. But at least it's not codename THE PRESENCE. And then we get a five-page filler, er, backup story called Clea, THE MYSTIC MAIDEN. Written by Naomi Basner. Drotted by Sandy Plunkett. Inked by Tony Sammons. Colored by Marie Severin. Lettered by Joe Rosen. And edited by Archie Goodwin. Defensive lineup. Clea! Clea was walking through Central Park when some jerk pulled out a switchblade and tried to mug her. So she zapped him with her magic. Hooray! Then the jerk pulled out a gun and tried to shoot her. So she zapped him with her magic. Hooray! Figuring that the chump had been pretty thoroughly zapped and wouldn't give her any more guff, Clea turned her back on him and continued on her way. Only the thing was, the chump hadn't been as thoroughly zapped as he was pretending to be, and he still had plenty of guff left to distribute. Soon as Clea wasn't looking, the jerk's image started shimmering. His denim jacket turned into a puffy-sleeved piratey shirt, his jeans turned into a blue and white leotard, and the jerk started flying. Uh-oh! There's no regular jerk; he's a magic jerk. The magic jerk sneaks up behind Clea, zaps her unconscious with his magic, and then takes her back to his place. When Clea wakes, she finds herself tied up in the middle of a pentagram with a big honkin' science machine pointed at her. The jerk introduces himself as Nicodemus—more like Jerkedemus. Am I right? Jerkedemus explains that he invented a machine that runs on spells and drains the magic out of people and gives it to him. Once Jerkodemus has used his device to slurp up enough stolen magic, he's going to use it to beat up Doctor Strange and take all his stuff. Clea thinks this is a shitty plan, but she doesn't have much of a chance to object, because Jerkedemus turns on his machine and slurps out all of her magic. Then Jerkedemus turns the creep factor up to 11 and starts to non-consensually smooch on Clea. So she grabs a nearby statue and biffs him over the head with it. Hooray! Then she calls Steve and asks if he can come pick her up and uses powers to turn the magic machine on again so it can slurp her powers out of Jerkedemus for her. Well, that story certainly was five pages long. and joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing?
1: I am doing well. Feeling good. It's a nice sunny day
0: outside. Yeah, it's Canada Day as we're recording this. Is it? Happy Canada Day to our yes. friends up north. I'm not Canadian myself, but I uh, I do own a Stompin' Tom Connors album, so who knows? Maybe I am Canadian. <laughs> that's all it takes? I think so. Oh. I think oh. when they stop you at the border, that's uh, it's either passport or... Passport, Stomping or you have Tom to Connors. show a, uh yeah, Stompin' Tom Connors album. Tom Connors. Yeah. I'm going to have to do some research. I don't know who that is. Oh, he's the guy who sings, It's Canada Day, up Canada way on the first day of July. Oh, that makes it easy to um, remember
1: when Canada Day is. Yeah, I know. It's handy. All right. Well, thank you, Tom Connors. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Tom Connors. He's pretty great. All right. So what do you think of this comic book? I enjoyed it. It's kind of like complicated collage that mm. you have to decide if you like it or you don't like it. And I came down
0: firmly on the side of I like it. I came down a little bit less firmly on the I do not like it side, Oh, but I see where you're coming from. Yeah, this is definitely, there's that old saying, a, a camel is a horse made by a committee. Um, We got ourselves a camel here. Mm. Reading this comic book, it's all creative people that I like a lot that are working on this but it doesn't really create that cohesive a picture when you're done with it it actually reminded me a lot of have you ever seen the movie casino royale mm. the 1967 one Mm-mm. are you familiar with it at all mm, is it like the later one not at all i'm it not is familiar with it. the first james bond movie it came out in 1967 it's before sean connery was associated with the franchise. Mm. And it is a screwball comedy What? that is based on Ian Fleming's first novel, (laughs) sort of.
1: His books aren't intentionally funny, are they?
0: No, no. I had heard that this was a bad movie, and I was like, okay, fine, it's a bad movie. I like a lot of bad movies. Sure. And then the credits started rolling at the beginning of it, because it's an old enough movie that they put the credits at the beginning, Mm -hmm. and I got really excited, because it's directed by Ken Hughes, Joseph McGrath. Robert Parrish, which made me super excited at first, but it's not the guy who used to play center for the Boston Celtics. Oh, that's too bad. So, yeah. Val Guest, Roger Talmadge, and John Houston. Wait, directed by all those people? Yeah. I don't know
1: much about direction or directors, but I'm led to believe that that's unusual
0: to have that many. It is unusual. But here's who it starred. Peter Sellers, Great. David Niven, mm-hmm. Ursula Andress, Orson Welles, Woody wow. Allen. Wow. I mean, yeah, Woody Allen's a piece of shit, but when I watched this, I actually didn't realize the extent to which that was true. Mm -hmm. So I got super excited, and man, I was prepared for a lot of ways that movie would be bad. I was not prepared for it to bore the shit out of me. Really? Yeah, and unfortunately, having this comic... That was written by David Anthony Kraft, Ed Hannigan, Don McGregor, and John Warner. And illustrated by Keith Giffen, and Dave Cockrum, and Michael Golden, and inked by Terry Austin. I was super excited about that. I was not prepared for it to largely bore me. Really? The art's very good. And the level on which I enjoyed it was trying to figure out which artist drew which panel. And that was kind of a fun scavenger hunt for me. And there were things about the story that I liked. I was able to to have some fun with it. But man, there are so many words and so many pictures. Like a lot of this is like on a 12 panel grid for a page. Mm-hmm. And so little happens. It was a lot to
1: take in. This is one of the few times where normally I will do my reading in the notes like a few hours before we do the podcast so that Mm -hmm. it's fresh and also because I'm bad at planning things. Mm -hmm. This one, I took a leisurely sit out on the patio, drink a nice Imperial IPA and slowly pour through it. So I had finished a 22 ounce strong beer by the time I (laughs) finished the comic, which maybe influenced me a little bit. But to me, it was pretty exciting because it's kind of like
0: this build up to everything blowing up. Which happens. Right. At the end. Which and surprised the shit on me. I, I will say, when it got to yeah. that part, I was like, all right, so they're going to come in with, when the countdown gets to one or whatever, mm-hmm. or the clock reads 007, then, you know, then they turn it off. Now, man, a nuclear bomb goes off and kills a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I honestly, that was set up in the last issue, and I did not see it coming in this one. Yeah, you think Hulk's going to just get like so bored he smashes something, which right. somehow...
1: Stops Nebulon, not Nebulon. The Nebulon look-alike. <laughs> he looks uh, just code like. Codename Sergei, co- which also actual name Sergey. Dude, I think it should somehow be outlawed in the comics code to have colons in people's names because it <laughs> confuses the shit out of me every time. <laughs> really? I see. Yeah. When else does it come up? It's just this guy. He's the. Oh, only, okay. He's the only one. Fair but enough. I don't like it. I do not like it. You shouldn't have a colon in your name.
0: Every character superhero name is their code name. So you could call every, almost every character in this book code name Nighthawk, code name Hellcat. Well,
1: if you're gonna do that, Codename just name
0: the Red Guardian. Be consistent. That's one of the biggest. Yeah, and they are not consistent be, in that. You're nope, right. Just one guy. Yeah, Sergei, no. who looks just like Nebulon. Yeah, I think I'm just gonna start calling him actual name, <laughs> Sergei. But that's also like the name of his organization, which he's just bad at naming shit. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's one of the ways in which the radiation fucked with his brain. It first affected the part of the brain that makes you able to name shit Mm. and then affects the part of your brain that is familiar with the concept of consent. Yeah. A lot of that going on in this comic. Yep. You get that from Sergei and then you get it, we'll get to it later when we talk about the backup, the Clea story, too.
1: Yeah, that was a lot of gross shit. Mm
0: -hmm. Creepy. The art in that was, was also, I thought, pretty awesome. It was not bad. I think the main thing you can say about that story is it was five pages long. It was indeed. I like that the, the way that the characters, all two of them, were drawn.
1: It was like in most of the scenes they were kind of like voguing. <laughs> they were very much like overly like articulating their movements in a way that was kind of funny. and.
0: Yeah. You know what? Let's, let's talk yeah. about the Clea story first then. Because m- one of my favorite choices that was made with it I think was not done by either the writer or the penciler. I think one of the most interesting choices that was made with that story was that nicodemus who i hear that name i just think of the rat from uh, mrs frisbee and the rats of nim oh. but nicodemus the not rat although he was still a rat he was he was, he was uh, is a, not nicodemus the rat nicodemus the piece of shit he is never drawn wearing a shirt or he is drawn in like two panels wearing a shirt And I think that was a decision that was made by Marie Severin, who's the colorist in this. Mm. Because both of his outfits, it looks like there is supposed to be some kind of a shirt drawn on him. But she's like, nah, this guy wouldn't wear a shirt. He certainly takes it off to do his complicated magic spells. And he also takes it off to dress up like a mugger in the park. He's wearing a denim jacket with no shirt when he's that type of creep. Mm. And I feel like that was a decision that the colorist made, not that the artist made. And then later, for a couple of panels, he's wearing a weird, flowy, peasant blouse type of shirt. Mm -hmm. And then later, after he hooks up the machinery, he's wearing a shirt for a couple of panels, and then... No, he's not.
1: Yeah, I just, I imagine there's an
0: off-panel, like, before he starts doing his spell. He's like, like, this is a very nice peasant blouse. I don't want to get magic all over it.
1: Oh, no, I was thinking more so it's like like how when guys get super macho before they fight and they take their shirts off. <laughs> he was, like, trying to psych himself up to do this big spell. He's Did
0: like, that, yeah, I got this. Did I tell you about the time when I was bartending and a guy was getting ready to fight another guy and he kicked his flip-flops off in an intimidating fashion? No. It was very funny. Did he and the then I guy? told him, you can't be shoeless in here, and I kicked him out of the bar and he had to sheepishly go look for his flip-flops. Oh. There's a pro wrestler right now called Matt Riddle who when he after he enters the ring, he wrestles barefoot, but he walks through the ring in flip flops and he's got kind of like a surfer bro mm. persona. And his first he does like a double kick that kicks both of his flip flops out into the audience. Um and it's actually pretty cool. That's pretty cool. The guy in the bar wasn't that guy, though. No. And it was not pretty cool. No, it sounds like a bad time to be it, a bartender. It, yeah, it was it was silly. So it's an okay story. It's Very short, very little happens. She is pretty tough. And I like that about the story, but it really is just like you could tell they needed to fill the space. The artist had kind of a career of doing like fill-in short stories and stuff for various comics. I forget the name. It was Sandy, Sandy Plunkett. His career spanned a couple of decades, but he never seemed to have like a really regular run on a main comic. He would do some stuff for like Marvel Premiere or Marvel Presents or stuff like that in the 80s and 90s. Uh, This was one of his first stories, and the writer, Naomi Basner, she did, as near as I can tell, this and one other backup story in a Marvel fanfare issue. Hmm. But, yeah, I thought it was okay. I didn't think there was that much to it. I wonder if Clea and Doctor Strange got together afterwards and compared notes about, like, Well, did I tell you about the time when I punched a desk man in the face? Hmm? When he couldn't use his magic powers? When he was fighting the uh, desk centaur? Mm Mm-hmm. In the future, yeah, he was very proud of himself. He was, yeah. And I, but and it's kind of a similar story. It's like, oh, you think because I don't have my magic, I'm defenseless? Bop. hmm
1: Yeah, no, that was she got him
0: good. Yep. Clocked him with so, him a statue. Good for her. Yep. And Nicodemus, what a creep. Gross. Put on a shirt. The fact that they needed that extra page count—it's there are a couple of things in the letter column that. Directly address the fact that this was a rush job. David Anthony Kraft was running behind schedule on the writing So he ended up getting help from other writers to help him finish the scripting And I think because the script arrived late the artists had to work more quickly So they had to bring on extra artists to work on it, too They brought on very good artists and that was the nice part and that was really fun. I love Dave Cockrum I love Michael Golden. They did a great job. Terry Austin's a great anchor And there's another artist that was a familiar name. I don't know if you noticed, but uh, do you know who did the cover? Mm -mm. George Perez.
1: Okay, that explains things. That explains why it's so nice. Yeah, I was was feeling like it reminded me of some of his stuff.
0: Yeah, so that was cool. Yeah, it's the Red Guardian coming out of a nuclear explosion, and she's all just covered with Kirby crackle and looks real, real cool. Mm -hmm. So that was pretty nice. Indeed. The other interesting thing that comes up on the letters column, as I said, the one thing that we learn is that David Anthony Kraft was behind schedule, and that was why this issue is a bit of a camel. The other thing that we learn is, I think David Anthony Kraft might be a bird. Oh, no. Why? Well, (laughs) the last letter is by somebody named Ezekiel Castro, who says that David Anthony Kraft is doing a good job and asks if he will consider being the regular series writer on this book. And the editor notes that, gee, we thought he was. After all, this is the 10th issue he's toiled on in one capacity or another, and he has the sensational storyline plotted out all the way through issue number 60 already. Or as he is apt to say, Ark! AWK! AWK! point. Mm, that
1: sounds pretty bird-like. I
0: think David Anthony Kraft might be a bird, which would explain why it was difficult for him to write this issue. Generally, birds are very slow writers.
1: Also, there was lots of shiny
0: stuff. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, I mean, the letterer has to decipher what he's written, and uh, could be real chicken scratch. <laughs> I honestly don't know what else they mean by, as he often says, awk! Yeah, was that, like, a,
1: in the 70s people said that when they... We're stressed out or something? I don't know.
0: Maybe they are saying that, gee, you asking if he'll be the regular series writer when he is already the series writer is awkward. And he was like, awk. That's totes awk. Ugh. I don't like that abbreviation. I don't either. And it was not one that I was familiar with until this goddamn bird put it in my head. That's I used it. to really like David Anthony Craft, but my long-standing distrust of birds might take precedent.
1: Man, that is well-placed. Mm-hmm. I saw a bunch of crows chasing a bald eagle. Whoa. Um, yesterday. It was pretty crazy.
0: That is pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch. Was of he like trying to like eat some carry on and they were just like, no, I don't
1: know. I just heard just a bunch of crows squawking like crazy and then shoof, like a really fast eagle and then like 10 or 15 crows hot on his tail. Wow. Yep.
0: Flying. Was the Benny Hill theme playing under it? No, but that would have been pretty great. <laughs> that would have been pretty great, yeah. Chases the bald eagle through a door, and then when they come out of the door, the bald eagle's chasing all the crows, and they're like, what happened? But the crows are topless. <laughs> yep. So let's go through the story that does happen in this book. The defenders are going to Atlantis to help Namor deal with the problem. Mm-hmm. Too much radiation, no good. It's no. about to kill everybody in his city. He tries to play it cool, but the pressure is too much,
1: and he has to punch a table.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: I love that, like, I could just see him sitting there, like, seething with, you guys are partying, and we have serious shit to
0: do. But he threw them the party. <laughs> He's like, he threw them well, the party, get and then it's like, yeah. oh, and you guys just gonna sit here and party while there's work to do. It's like, well, you were the one who hired entertainment and told the jesters and underwater acrobats to come perform. And I'm sorry, but if you are an undersea creature, then underwater acrobat has got to be the easiest goddamn job in the world. Like, I get that maybe there's like contortion type stuff going on, but the defying gravity part of it, big fucking deal. Oh, I don't know. Do you ever try and do like the
1: handstand in the deep end of a pool? Yeah, man. It's not that easy. It's pretty easy. Well, it's easier than on land, for sure, but I don't know if I would take it to, like...
0: In front of Namor?
1: Yeah, he's a harsh critic, I bet. He's a
0: pretty dramatic guy. And there were some things that happened in this issue that made me kind of wonder if he is just a product of his Atlantean culture and that everybody in Atlantis is super dramatic, or maybe he enforces a certain level of drama to make sure that the Atlanteans meet his standard on that because there is a very early panel where the submarine driver who's bringing them to Atlantis says, initiate docking procedures immediately. And he points super dramatically when he does it. I actually wrote down <laughs> something like, ship's crew,
1: extremely dramatic. Yeah. When but I was noting this.
0: All of the Atlanteans are. And like, when Lord Vashti, the guy who's, I think, the main advisor, takes over, the meeting and starts giving a briefing. It starts with, Behold my liege. I wonder if those briefings used to start off with, Look guys. And Namor was like, mm. He's like, "Uh, Behold?
1: like Better? I think if I'm in a job again where I have to do business update meetings in front of large audiences. With slides, start it with behold?
0: Yes. I think that's a really good It'll decision. probably
1: just capture... The attention in the room. Yeah. I mean, in a
0: bad way for me, but still. Hey, whatever. People will pay attention. No such thing as bad attention. <laughs> That's the old adage. Yep. No such thing That's as... what I learned as a teenager. <laughs>
1: I keep acting out. I'm getting all this bad attention. It's great. Go me.
0: But yeah, Namor is funny in this issue. He is very, very Namory. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that he brings up, which is kind of odd, is... There is a huge existential threat to his civilization. This city, as he describes it, it seems as though they are all going to die quite soon from radiation poisoning. Once that's established, I don't feel like you need to raise the stakes any. But he's like, and this is a really bad time for this to happen, because not only will it kill us, but everybody's going to be super bummed out because we were doing pretty good for a minute. Hmm. Losing momentum on the reconstruction thing? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh man, nuclear war is imminent and the planet is going to be totally destroyed. And the worst part is, it's Easter Sunday. We were almost done building that bridge. Man, what a bummer. What a drag. Bad timing. Yeah. For the Atlanteans me. have had it pretty goddamn rough for a while now, though. I mean, I think this latest one was everybody had just gotten some kind of a neurotoxin poisoning, and Namor had uh, had to agree to be Doctor Doom's butler for a week to pay off the debt and make Doctor Doom help out. Something like that. Man, I can't see Namor butlering for anybody. Well, it's like supervillain-style butlering, so more like go destroy those good guys type of shit. Oh. Uh... You can see him doing that, Yeah. Yeah, sure. Hulk's a real fucking treat in this issue. Eh. And grumbling around. He got hangry. (laughs) He was much chiller after he was taken to the big feast, which is weird because it has been established in the past that he does not like to eat fish. And I would assume that the primary food you get in Atlantis would be seafood. Although... It could be a reversal thing where like land food is like super premium and since they're at the palace and they're guests of the king or the prince. Prince king? Don't know. Monarch. Sure. I bet that at this point Namor is the king, but he likes to be called the prince because it makes him feel younger.
1: <laughs> could be. No, I think Hulk explicitly
0: calls out that the fish is good. Well, I think he is calling it fish food as in like the fishmen are feeding him. Um, that was that was my interpretation. Oh. Fish food tastes good, Hulk wants more. Right. So, so it's, it's like the food like... for the fishmen. I think if it was seafood he would just call it fish. But maybe he does like seafood now. Could
1: be he's just eating it looks kinda like a chicken fried steak. Yeah. Just a big chicken fried steak.
0: You fry anything, it's gonna taste pretty good. Gotta be difficult to fry things underwater. Mmm. Very impressive. More impressive than fucking underwater acrobatics, I'll tell you that. Underwater deep fryer. Pretty good. Pretty good. (laughs) The other thing that the Hulk did, which really cracked me up, is in the opening panel. The four defenders that are present are very much demonstrating their personalities as they are portrayed in this issue, in their facial expressions. Namor is looking super, like, grim and determined and dramatic. Hellcat is just grinning it up. Nighthawk has a completely blank expression on his face because he is bland as fuck in this issue. And the Hulk is pointing out the windshield at a moray eel and making a gesture like, get a load of this fuck. I
1: really love the way that his face is drawn there because he totally looks like he's doing that.
0: He's got like a Nick Fury style expression on his face, which you're not used to seeing on the Hulk. It really is just a get a load of this asshole. Mm-hmm. I I really dug that. Hulk also has a fun moment where he has to wear one of those like deep sea diver Fish bowls over his head mm-hmm. and he hates that shit he, he does not, he's not like, like it guys i will just fucking hold my breath it's fine i don't need this and it's just wrong fish go inside the fishbowl not outside the fishbowl mm-hmm. very uh high functional fixedness with the hulk things are what they are for they are not for other things yep yep could he's, use a little more flexibility in his thinking he's no baby don't babies have higher functional fixedness Low functional fixedness is a sign of intelligence. Oh, I got it backwards. (laughs) Oh, jeez. Hi, Editor Hub here from the future to point out that Corey was in fact right on this point, and I was wrong. Studies have shown that children under the age of six have demonstrably lower levels of functional fixedness than older children or adults. Sorry about that, and please, don't tell Corey that he was right and I was wrong. You've been training those babies wrong. Oh, no. Man, whoever hired you to be a baby wrangler, they did not get their money's worth. Bad call. I mean, the babies got wrangled.
1: It's just a functional fixedness issue as well.
0: Yeah, they they use spoons for spooning food. Into their mouths. Yep, wouldn't use it as a musical instrument.
1: No, I did that. Played the spoons? No, I I attempted to use a spoon to play a guitar. Oh, like a slide? Mm Mm-hmm. It didn't work? I thought it sounded pretty cool, but, you know. The other people who weren't you didn't? <laughs> I don't think my parents were really into it. Philistines. I mean, they were really into Michael Hedges at the time, so. Yeah. It's You'd not... think they would be down with that, yeah. then. Yeah, I thought they would like it.
0: Maybe they are just like, no, slides are for basses, Corey. What? Wasn't Michael Hedges a bass player? Oh, he played all kinds of things. Did he? Yeah. That guy had no aerial boundaries. Oh, <laughs> Very low functional (laughs) fixing. A real funky avocado. Oh, man.
1: These are are some deep Michael Hedges cuts. That's disturbing that
0: you remember that. I remember those two
1: album titles. Now I do also. (laughs) Wow, yeah, you were around during the the Hedges years. Yeah, I really was. (laughs) Those were some long years. (laughs) It's
0: it's like they would never end. (laughs) Let's talk about my favorite part of this story. All right. Valkyrie and Clea having some coffee. Yeah, that's a cool way to pour coffee. It's a cool way to clear the dishes, too. Oh, that was my favorite. That is how you should definitely end your presentations if you are ever in a corporate environment.
1: Be gone! Be gone!
0: <laughs> Stand up and throw your hands <laughs> in the air and shout. <laughs> shout, Be gone. I love it. I like the idea that Valkyrie's like, I'm pretty sure she means the dishes, but just in case, I'm going to go now. Yeah,
1: I'm going to go too. That's my cue.
0: Yeah, I loved that exchange. Uh, The one thing I didn't love about their conversation is Clea basically trying to normalize the Defenders and Doctor Strange's behavior in terms of Valkyrie is reasonably upset that she was just like, yeah, all my friends were here and then they were all gone and they didn't call or leave any note or anything. I don't know where anybody is. And Clea's just like, yeah, Steve does that all the time. You get used to it. She's like, "I don't like it either, but it's just the way it is, but it's fine, yeah, yeah No, that did. that behavior is not normal. People should leave notes, I agree yeah it's it it's not unavoidable. Leave a note, mm-hmm, they had some pre- they had time to have a fucking banquet in Atlantis and stay overnight while the modifications were made. They had time to leave a note. They got phones in Atlantis, or even mystical means, yeah, well, they don't have any mystics on their team, well,
1: called strange'd be like, hey, send vas." Of- Thought bubble.
0: Oh, yeah, and Steve definitely has mystical means to contact Clea. Right? There's no excuse for that behavior. He does that all the time yep. for other people. Yeah. I am
1: Steve.
0: Yeah. Hey, Behemoth, this way. Right. Mm-hmm. I could ask you to come this way, but in th- I think instead I'll just send my ghost self to stand in front of you and make you mad. Mm. Mm. More efficient that way. That's... Uh, I still mad at him about that it's a dick move and he got valkyrie trained in that too Mm -hmm. i feel like between clea and steve they're teaching her some very bad habits well at least she's going to college where she can learn some
1: good (laughs) ones (laughs) yeah good for her if you're getting back on that horse
0: yeah that's impressive and good for her too for standing her ground on the subway
1: yeah i had a note about that it made me think of this this uh Man spreading, like <laughs> how they call it these days and yeah. she was basically just trying to claim some space of her own on the bus and all the dudes like freaked out and
0: i loved that i loved that her reaction to it too because like yeah just everybody is fucking crowding her it's a crowded subway and when she first gets on the subway she's like oh people bitch about this this is kind of chill i like this and then it starts getting more crowded and then she's it starts getting more crowded and she just kind of shouts at everybody, everyone needs to respect my personal space and get away from me. And she shoves them all aside. And then there is a reaction shot of her just looking much happier and everyone else around her just being like, God, what a, what a jerk. Oh, I can't believe the nerve of her. And uh, she is completely fine with that. One of the guys has a word bubble that says mumble. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you saw word bubbles coming out of my head, they would often just say mumble. Mm. Or grumble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, grumble for sure. I'm sure glad there aren't thought bubbles coming out of my head. I'm even more glad that there aren't word bubbles coming out of my car. Like when I'm talking to myself aloud when I'm driving by myself. <laughs> if thought, other people could read those. I thought you meant like when uh, when somebody
1: does a, bat, a thing you don't like in the car and you yell at them because... That's happened a few
0: times, but you've had the window
1: down and stuck your head out, so...
0: (laughs) Sometimes. But, like, if it's not triggered by anything specific... Because I just think weird shit when I'm in my car, and then I say it out loud to myself. And I don't really know what it means or where it comes from. The other day I was driving, I had to stop at a stop sign because there was a guy jogging in front of me. And he jogged across the street. And just the fact that he was running, I said... Oh, grow up. (laughs) And I started laughing because that was my genuine reaction to watching somebody run. I don't know what it was like. seemed frivolous that they would be running. Yeah, but... (laughs) Oh, grow up. I wish your car had word bubbles on it. That would be hilarious. Yeah, it's for the best that it doesn't. Mm. But overall, I liked that uh, Cleo was being a good supportive friend, having some coffee with her pal... And I liked Val's reaction. I liked that she tripped lunatic when she saw him out running around. Mm-hmm. What do you think of lunatic? Is, we've seen him described before, but this is the first time we've seen him. Yeah, pretty weird. I don't
1: like that they're going for a clown thing with his his face makeup. Or yeah, maybe I, I would Cooper say more thing.
0: more mime than clown, maybe. Yeah, it's a, the same. It's it's a very subdued clown, which is the weird part. Creepy still. Yes. Definitely still creepy. He's
1: got a weird, uh, is it a, the thing he has in his hands, is it what people on tight ropes use to balance?
0: Maybe, I think it's just that we've seen him use it as more of a weapon than that. It's like a long skinny pole with two cylinders on each end. Yeah, it's like if the pugil sticks from uh, American Gladiator were not soft on the end, but just were all made of metal
1: mm Once again. Yeah, American gladiators. Gladiators.
0: Yeah, just keeps Gifts, coming up. The gift that keeps on giving. hmm So we talked before about how I was trying to figure out which artists were working on which panels. Mm-hmm. I was doing that to an extent with the writers, too, and there were definitely certain phrases that just seem more flowery that I would probably attribute to Don McGregor. There is a lot of really dense verbiage in this, including a newspaper article about the atomic blast. Did you read the newspaper article? I actually did. That Holy shit! Was crazy. It's, it's, it's a beautiful panel. Yeah. It's really, really well illustrated. And then there is a full newspaper article about the nuclear explosion in Romania. Name checks Ceausescu, which I hadn't heard that name in a while.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But mostly what stuck out at me was a woman describing walking in an area where there now were no buildings and seeing... Body parts. But... Random hands... And legs and heads. Yeah, it was gruesome. Just a pile of fucking appendages. Damn. We find out that it has a body count in at least the high hundreds. This is some fucking epic shit that's going down. Yeah, real name Sergey is a real piece of garbage. Yeah, fuck that guy. You can see why he would want a code name, but when you're choosing a code name, choose one different than your actual name. And don't write code name in front of it. Yeah. Like, give yeah, it away. Yeah, it really does. It's making me realize that as bad as he is at maintaining a secret identity, Kyle is not the worst at maintaining a secret identity. I think Sergei is. Mm-hmm. Sergei is the worst in a lot of regards. I do not like him. There is one panel, the panel in which you said he looked the most like Nebulon, because he does like his hair is Bozo the Clowning out, like just sticking up in tufts at the side.
1: He's got the little stars, too.
0: Yeah, because he's glowing with nuclear energy. But his outfit has gone nearly full orco at that point. achieved full orco. Yep. He doesn't have the hat. He doesn't have the hat. But the rest of his outfit. But yeah, look at that. It's like he's got no body. He's all robe.
1: He's got one of those, uh, his hair looks like those uh, troll things that go on the top of the pencils.
0: Oh, yeah. What a jerk. It's super creepy that he, the way that he is mind controlling Bolinski. And robbed her of all her free will, but is also just like using his mind control to be like, You love me and you think everything I say is great and right. It is so bad and creepy. Not cool. No. Between that and creating big piles of heads and hands, I'm willing to say that actual name Sergei is not a good guy. But he's an excellent villain. I guess. He is. He's awful. He's he's awful, but... That's a good villain criteria. But, like, Doctor Doom is awful in a much more fun way. I like my villains, like, scenery chewing, but having, like... Some weird inherent nobility to them. Mm. And Sergei doesn't have this. There's no pathos to him. I don't give a fuck about this dude. I hope he hurts both his knees. Oh. Yeah. Me too. Fuck that guy. Yeah. If he even has knees, tough to tell under that robe. Well, at the end he seems to have knees. Well, they could be mechanical or something. You're right. The important thing is that they're hurt. Yeah. The way he's drawn at the end, it looks like he's got uh, fire in his belly, literally. I was thinking the same thing. It looks like he has a, a hole in his tummy and there's like a fire burning inside of it. in and, and what I think of as his Krang hole. Huh? You know how on uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Krang, the brain would live inside a big dude's tummy? Ah. Uh, oh, the little alien thing? Yeah, the one? little little brain would live inside a dude, yeah. big dude's, big android's tummy. Mm-hmm. This, uh, this guy carved out a little crank hole for himself in his tummy. Gotcha. Okay. He's just asking for cranks. Well, I mean, maybe that's why he has to keep fire in there. Keep him out. Yep. That seems overly complicated. It kind of does, but Sergey is not the best at plans that's... or code names or anything. Well, he's good
1: at blowing things up. Touche. You ready to get into the
0: minutia? Sure. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. it's not the biggest part, it's just minutia, like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. time to sweat the small stuff. Man,
1: there are so many outfits, so many different sorts of clothes.
0: Yeah, well let's just get right into those. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you want to discuss? Well we already talked about the fire and not Nebulon's belly. Right. But he's got other shit going on with his outfit. Full orco you mentioned? Well, he goes full orco earlier on, but I mean even at the end once he's got the literal fire in his belly.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He's got a Karnak-style big egg-shaped helmet. Mm-hmm. Or possibly big egg-shaped head. Tough to tell. Or like a miter. Yeah. But my favorite aspect of it is that he's got his previous like purple cloak tied around his waist like he a preppy sweater. And that just really cracked me up. I was like, oh, he likes that robe. He doesn't want to get rid of it. I mean, it's radiation proof or at least mostly radiation proof. So even after he changed his outfit, he's like, I'll just tie it around my waist. Yeah, I was seeing that as more of like a giant, like a diaper. Oh, it could be concealing. It's got to be pretty scary being in the the middle of a nuclear bomb. Radiation. You think he like maybe has some stains and he just wanted to cover him up? It's awfully convenient where it,
1: the robe is tied. I'm it saying. really is.
0: Goddamn, that is such a good picture. It is really cool. He's got the, like, golden football pads. He's got a weird red mask that comes down over his face. And then above his eyebrows, like, a secondary little mask that has, like, a little Voltron V on it. That's pretty tough. Pretty shiny. Mm-hmm. And all the Kirby crackle. Yep. Yeah, very powerful. Yeah. And you he got a new name. He's the Presence. I do not like that name. No? No. But I do like how much alliteration it offers the title of the issue. Mm-hmm. The Power Principle Part 1, The Prince and the Presence. That's a lot of Ps. A lot of plosives. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? You you like the name The Presence? It's better than his old name. Codename colon Sergey. Yeah, that is that bothers me. I know. It's okay. What other fashion is there in this issue? We get Lunatic's outfit, which I don't like his clown makeup. Especially it's odd because I'm not sure to what extent they are going for a clown motif because I can't quite tell if he just has a perm or if he's wearing a wig. Hmm. Because it's kind of a Greg Brady style perm. Mm -hmm. But he's got the mime makeup with it, which makes it It's like, oh, that might be a clown wig. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I do like his green and blue jumpsuit. Which is a tight fucking look, less so with the purple gloves and boots.
1: yeah it was a little too uh what's the other name for the like the court jester like the fool it was a little too like that yeah. sort of costume the
0: harlequin ha-
1: yeah, it's a little too close to that for comfort. yeah, I find that
0: outfit um creepy. yeah, I can understand that It is also just weird to have the very athletic suit like it, it looks like a track suit, but then he's wearing big clunky boots with it and like gloves. But man, can that guy jump a turnstile? Or maybe pole vault. He might have used
1: his thing to pole vault.
0: Yeah, I see him do that. You know what I think? Hmm. Grow
1: up. (laughs) Of course you do. We talked about him a little bit before, and he is fabulous in fuchsia. The dramatic Lord Vashti has a pretty amazing getup with the biggest belt buckle cod piece. I don't know what it is that I've ever seen on page seven. Let's take a look at that.
0: Whoa. What is that? It's like he has a purple cardboard standee of the brain in front of him. From the Brotherhood of Evil and the Teen Titans one. Oh, yeah. It's like he just strapped that around his waist. Dang. That is a hell of an outfit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I hadn't even really noticed that. Yeah, and he's got like
1: little uh, scallop shell detail thingies that hold his cloak on over the top of that. Mm -hmm. It's uh, really fancy.
0: A A lot of shell themed stuff. Atlanteans sure
1: it's like people that live at the coast
0: yeah (laughs) everybody in Atlantis has like puka shell necklaces on yeah man (laughs) that doesn't I mean I would say that would be more like a no drama thing well (laughs) I think I think think Namor would put a stop to that right away yeah he hears Matthew McConaughey and he's just like no all wrong all wrong all wrong behold (laughs) be gone
1: (laughs) it's the shortest speech ever
0: Corey, as we discussed, there were a lot of words in this issue. But what was your pie not made out of steel? What words did you like best? Like you would like a pie were it not made
1: out of steel. I'm conflicted here because I want to go with an extremely, like, as you mentioned, there was a lot of words in here, a lot of it in exposition kind of boxes. Mm-hmm.
0: A lot of really florid exposition, a lot of alliteration, mm-hmm. But but my favorite... Is
1: an exclamation that I would never heard before. I don't think maybe she said it before, but Hellcat is amazed when she sees Atlantis, and uh-huh. she
0: exclaims, "Cheese and crackers!" I loved that too. Yeah, no, I, I had a similar thing where yeah, there was a lot of really florid, really purple prose in this, which I kind of enjoyed on a level. On a certain level, I was kind of slogging through it. I was tempted to go some with something really flowery. What what I loved, cheese and crackers. I also really liked Be Gone! <laughs> and I think my other favorite was Valkyrie on the subway saying, Valhalla, I like this not
1: Anybody who's been on public transportation in any large city has thought something like that at some point.
0: Yeah, I wonder if she was dealing with, say, somebody watching a tv show on their phone with no headphones on why is that a thing now i have no idea i felt like that was not a thing for a very long time like we have not gotten much right as a society but until very recently people knew to wear headphones if they were doing that
1: yeah i'm not okay with that and it's no. becoming a thing
0: yeah it, it seems as though it is and i haven't yet figured out what to do about it Have you considered getting one of those metal poles that's like one of the American Gladiator's pugil sticks, but that uh, is just all metal? No, that sounds
1: like I could get um, in legal trouble if I Mm, were to do that. Possibly, possibly. What I was thinking, so normally what occurs to me is like, I look at the person, I'm like, what is the thing that they would hate the most? And then I want to bring that up on whatever device I have and just go sit next to them and turn it on and be like, oh, sorry, I, I, that, I, you
0: know. Yeah, but if that doesn't work, if they don't turn that off immediately, then you're just another asshole and you're making the problem worse. Or they could double down. Yeah. And then it's just whoever has the loudest thing. Oh, boy. So I never went there, but that's, uh, that's the, my first, like, thought. Well, you could, and this would escalate things very quickly. And I've never actually done this, but you could call them ace- Tiger. These are the things you could call the person. Buddy. Buddy. Yeah. You called somebody Buddy once, didn't you?
1: Oh, I did. Was was... it Buddy
0: or was it Pal? I said Buddy. Man. Was it exhilarating?
1: It was just one of those things where I was so mad I didn't really think about what I was saying. (laughs) It was in a good part of a movie. I can't even remember which one now because I was so mad at the dude. (laughs) In the middle of the dark theater, he starts talking loud on his phone. Oh. So I, I turned around and I said, Hey, Go talk outside, buddy. And I jerked my thumb over my shoulder, nice. like, towards the exit. Did he hit the bricks? No, he looked really sheepish and, like, made a, no,
0: oh, it's okay, gesture, and then said, so Oh, I gotta go. Oh, okay. Well, good. Did anybody applaud you?
1: No. Everybody no, when just, you were...
0: like, they ignored everything, like, like, oh, conflict. This was After me. the movie, when you were leaving the theater, did anybody thank you for your service? No, but the person
1: <laughs> I had gone to see the movie with was like, thanks for almost starting a fight in the theater. I was like, what? what? Yeah. It was not a... It was not... I'm sorry. I don't think that was an accurate assessment. I appreciate what you did. Thank you. You're a very brave man. I should have told that
0: guy to grow up. Yeah! In every issue of a Defenders comic, there is at least one character who acts in a way that is contrary to their previously established character or motivation in a way that furthers the plot. To quote the Fat Boys from Crush Groove, they've just got to be a suck-up. In this issue... Who was your sucker?
1: <sighs>
0: I feel not great
1: about this choice. It seems somewhat unfair, but in the past, Doctor Tanya Belinsky has had to deal with some mind control stuff. If I remember correctly, when the the uh, Red Raja yeah Red, came yeah, and Steve. Was, yep all of that, and she she overcame it one way or another. Yeah, and this like there's only the smallest amount of edit editorializing going towards like you know her real self tries to reassert itself but then it
0: just gives up or it can't yeah and i
1: don't know that didn't feel like uh
0: i yeah character to me i get that it's mind control though i mean i don't think it's necessarily saying that she's weak-willed in any way they put a device on her head and then sergey's got his crazy sergey powers saying anybody could do any better but that was uh that was what i came up with okay I decided to go with Nighthawk. Hmm. He was very quiet in this issue. He was quiet and respectful. What? That's not the Kyle I know. Well, one Namor to another, you know, he's got that kind of... I'm going to read little you... A bit of hero
1: worship going on,
0: I think. The entirety of his dialogue in this issue. First time we see him, he's just standing there, thoughtfully. Second time we see him, Namor is giving a speech, and he thinks to himself... While rubbing his chin, he's got a real point. Mm. The next panel, he says, Well said, Namor. And no, it isn't asking too much. That's it? That's it. That's Nighthawk in this issue. So one of two things is happening. One is that he is just bowled over and is trying really hard to impress Namor. Which I think is pretty likely. Or he's like, Shit, I'm the one who's supposed to brood and be melodramatic... But there is no way I can out Namor Namor on that. So what is my fucking role in this team even? Mm. Like, I'm clearly not the leader if Namor's standing over there. And I was going to be the leader because I was the only rich white dude. But he's like the king of a country. And also he's just fucking Namor. He's clearly in charge. So I'm not in charge. When I'm not in charge, I brood melodramatically. dramatically. Well, shit, he's got me beat there too. Is he just having an existential crisis? Which I guess would be in character for him. The other thing that I was thinking might be a possibility is, as I said, like, this was a rushed issue with a lot of different writers working on it. So I can see if it was the series' regular writer, if it was just David Anthony Kraft doing that, maybe he would have filled in the word bubbles differently. So, like, there's the one panel where, like, Kyle's thinking really hard and is rubbing his chin, and it got filled out with him thinking... He's got a point. But I wonder if that's just because it was a writer who was unfamiliar with him. And what he was really thinking was Kyle, Kyle, Kyle. Kyle, Kyle, Kyle. Kyle, Kyle, Kyle. Kyle, Kyle, Kyle. That's a nice little Kyle song. Yeah. I think that's what he does. <laughs> I think that's what he does some of the time. Yeah. But anyway, I had him as my sucker because uh, he was uh, too quiet. Too quiet, too respectful. Mm-hmm. That's not his way. Yeah, uncharacteristic. Mm Mm-mm. Cory, every issue of a Defenders comic has a best defender and a worst offender. In this issue, who was the best defender?
1: I did have a little bit of a uh, toss-up here. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I had to go with Namor for uh, getting the Knot team together, getting them to Atlantis, and uh, getting his council together a little bit late, unfortunately. but. For something that started off with him and the Hulk really butting heads and just wasting a bunch of time fighting for no reason, I feel like he really turned it around. Yeah, I mean, it didn't to no end. To no well, it it, it accomplished nothing. Things blew up. (laughs) Yeah, but he was trying his best. Yeah. So I give him an A for effort. But my backup, which is maybe in some ways a better choice, was Val because she was just she was cool on the subway and uh, she, you know, bit the bullet. And went back to to uh, registration.
0: Yeah, I had Val for similar reasons. My backup was for Hellcat for refusing to leave the room when all of the women were told to leave the room.
1: Oh, yeah, I was going to talk about that so, before we got into the minutia. This well, Atlantis needs uh, the ERA or something.
0: And it does. And that is why I am choosing Namor as my worst offender in this. Because he didn't speak up? I mean, it comes from the top down. Mm. This kind of behavior, this kind of treatment. He is in charge of Atlantis. He should not be putting up with that nonsense. Uh, You have to assume that people are following his lead on this. They do in everything else. They're pointing dramatically when they give very standard issue routine orders. He's got to put a stop to that, that kind of practice that, well, there's important work to be done, so all of the women out of the room. Fuck that. He's in charge. He needs to do better. That is a good point. I think, uh... I think Namor should uh, do something about that. I think he should, too. Huh. Him and Clea would make a nice couple. Hmm. I mean, we've seen his, his dating choices before. He likes powerful women. He likes independent women. We see that, that he's very uh, into Sue Storm from the Fantastic Four. His uh, first girlfriend back in the Golden Age stuff was Betty Dean, who was a policewoman in the 40s. Lady Dorma was like that. Clea, you know, she's powerful. She's independent. And she's willing to put up with somebody having amnesia and wandering off for long periods of time. It's probably for the best that they were not dating previously, because he probably just would have killed Ben Franklin when they boned down. Oh, you know it. I mean well, I mean when Clea and Ben Franklin boned down. I know. The name I, I wasn't saying that shit. Namor I mean if Namor boned Ben Franklin, he might have killed him too. <laughs> Very energetic. Uh... <laughs> Oh, uh, shaking my head. That's fair. Who is your worst offender? For
1: worst, I picked Kyle because, much like Steve Strange, also like Namor. Not it cool to just leave a note. take off and not leave a note. That is rude, and I don't appreciate it. That is also a good choice. You gotta leave a note. You gotta leave a note. Yours is a better choice, though, because Namor needs to fix
0: his, his yeah. management style. Yeah. Yeah. Either... Everybody be gone or nobody be gone. Yeah, or just, yeah, most qualified people stay. Yeah, everybody, you know what? Ladies, you stay and behold too. Yeah. Everybody behold. The Atlantean way. The new Atlantean way. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of a category that we can install that's like a good thing and a bad thing that's behold or be gone.
1: Oh.
0: <laughs> That'd be a good rating system. Yeah, behold or be gone. Mm -hmm. i like that we can add that in yeah we can uh yeah pinpoint one incident which we're on defense about whether it's a good thing or a bad thing Mm -hmm. and it can be called behold or be gone yeah i like that Corey, what was your favorite panel
1: oh man the art in here was great it was hard to narrow it down near the very top of my list is actually be gone like that just (laughs) cracked me up so much i felt like that like when you cook a lot and there's all these dishes and then you eat and then you're full and tired and Maybe yeah, it I like, who made this bus. mess <laughs> <laughs> just want to throw my hands up and just be like be gone that would be a great thing to have happen be really satisfying mm-hmm. so that's at the top uh, there's also the panel you know what I would
0: say after that hmm. dishes are done man <laughs> yeah that's pretty cool. It's a quote from Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, a movie which I saw one small part of once, but every time I finish doing the dishes, I say that either inside my head or outside of my head. Okay. In the movie, they were uh, skeet shooting their dishes. Oh, and then they're done because they're all broken and yeah. shot? Yeah.
1: Okay. Wait, that's not what you do to your dishes? No, no. Okay. I don't have a gun. Cool. Good to know. Dishes are done. Be gone. <laughs> Be gone. Good panel. It's vying with other more artsy ones uh on page 3, the landing in Atlantis. Man, that is a is bonkers
0: gorgeous illustration. I would bet that one is uh Michael Golden as the artist on that. But it's real real good. Mhm. That one's amazing.
1: Also page 17, the newspaper article one we talked about, like that uh we haven't seen a lot of that that sort of motif of explaining things have happened uh, in these comics and I thought it was really effective
0: yeah it's an interesting like montage style of the newspaper article has been clipped out and is over a montage of nuclear explosions and buildings falling down and cliff sides falling off it's really well done I also would throw the first appearance of Codename Sergei as the presence in there Because that is just so fucking cool looking. That one to me looks like it's probably Cockrum taking the lead on that illustration. But it's really good. I agree.
1: Corey, what was your favorite sound effect? I think I only found one, so I picked it. It's Val, uh, tripping lunatic. And it makes the sound, TRIP!
0: There you go. Uh, in the Clea backup, there is the noise, Zot! When he, uh, destroys her... Shackles. Zot's a nice one. Reminds me, there's a comic book, Zot by Scott McCloud. Hmm. Um, that's real nice. But I don't want to give it to that because it's Nicodemus using his powers and I fucking hate Nicodemus. So instead, I'm going to go with a fairly mundane sound effect that's accompanying an action I like a lot. Which is Clea hitting Nicodemus over the head with a big heavy statue and it makes the noise, whack! That's a good noise. W-A-K. And a good thing to do with a statue. Mm-hmm. So... Trip and whack. Trip and whack. Yeah, not a ton of uh, sound effects in this. No room for them, really. No, too much other writing. Too many other words. Mm-hmm. Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? So there's
1: a, a a point in here where he's saying something to the effect of, like, I don't understand time. I just know that I'm getting hungrier and hungrier. Uh-huh. So yeah, okay. Granted, the whole slow food thing predated '77 by a while with Alice Waters, and that was like what mid '60s or something in Shapinies. But I do feel like, and this we're getting a, a little bit into like kind of time stampy stuff here. But you know, the the Hulk rules is is really just take your time and enjoy food because time is irrelevant. But everybody's got to eat.
0: Very good. Interestingly, I have the Hulk learning. The opposite lesson. Really? I had The Hulk's rules being the way you budget your time affects others. Because because they took the time to take that banquet and take their time eating and enjoy their digestion, a nuclear bomb went off and killed hundreds of people and left a pile of limbs and heads. I don't think you can attribute that to the banquet. You can. How are they
1: gonna get to halfway around the world or wherever codename real name sergey
0: is and dismantle his stuff in time they were approaching it as the countdown was happening they were almost there are they really yeah they're right up on it um. they're right up on it man they could have just brought some uh some fucking granola bars with them man the hulk was wrong about that slow food thing i know, <laughs> you know the world's <laughs> at stake I mean, there's also the larger, more meta-narrative reason of bec- because David Anthony Kraft wasn't able to budget his time better. A ton of writers and artists had to work their asses off to get this issue out on time. But I feel like I had another reason for thinking that this was the Hulk's rules, but I, I can't remember what 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 it was. When your brother says he's going to be here <laughs> at three and shows up at four, <laughs> I wrote that before you were late. <laughs> <Okay>. um. <laughs> It did. it did occur to me that, <laughs> that when that happened, I was like, "Oh, that's gonna come across as passive aggressive." It was not intended that way. He's gotta learn the Hulk's rules <laughs> a little better. And that's the Hulk's rule. Corey, it's time to write some wongs. Oh, good. What wongs needed writing in the year of our Lord 1977 and the month of our Lord November.
1: So. This is going to touch on a couple of things that we've talked about in, in previous uh, segments on Wong. Uh, one of the more recent ones was uh, Steve took Wong to see the musical Hair. Mm-hmm. And uh, Steve has since become obsessed with the soundtrack for Hair. Understandably so. And won't stop playing the thing on the hi-fi that oh, they share geez. in the apartment. And um, Wong was really excited. He had been waiting quite some time for the record all in all. By Earth, Wind, and Fire to come out, which came out on the 21st of the month. Because, especially, it has the song Serpentine Fire, which uh-huh. we've, we've talked about before being
0: pretty great. Is that the album that has all in all? Uh-huh, yeah. Something, something, something. Yeah, it
1: is. And uh, so it's got that. It's just, it's a great album. I listened to it a couple times today while I was finishing up my notes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he's annoyed. Can't get hair off the hi-fi. Steve won't let him. I mean, Hair's a very good album, too,
0: if it's the original Broadway
1: cast. You know how it is when you're excited to hear something. Yeah, yeah. So he's managed to uh, to dub to tape uh, this, but he also doesn't have a hi-fi of his own. So he's like, how am I going to make this happen? And then he remembers one of his old buddies was an inventor, a Brazilian-slash-German guy named Andreas Pavel, who had given him... In the mid-70s, sometimes, a few years previous, uh, a prototype of one of his inventions he was working on called the Sound Belt, Mm. which was essentially a predecessor of the the Walkmans that became really popular, but it was a belt that you wore around, and it had these two speakers on it that you could hook up to your ears, and so Wong was walking around, doing his stuff, listening to the Sound Belt, totally grooving, and gave... This buddy Mr. Pavel a call, he's like, dude, this thing is fucking awesome. You gotta you gotta find a way to market it. You gotta somebody else is gonna jump on this technology if you don't. And so at Wong's urging, later that month in seventy seven, Pavel did file for patent in the US and some other European countries. He was unable to successfully bring his invention to market.
0: Oh, that's a shame.
1: Yet when the Walkman came out in nineteen seventy nine, he did promptly sue Sony and that was thrown out as frivolous. He lost about $3 million. <laughs> oh, it was a real bummer. Shit. But he had a few other inventions that he also felt Sony encroached on his patents for. And he did wind up settling out of court with them to the tune of around $10 million. Uh, That's large. pretty good. Pretty good. So seven after. Yeah. After expenses. And um, so that was one small way Wong was helping or trying to get
0: his buddy to, to write some Wongs. Very nice. Well. Perhaps inspired by the musical hair, Steve decided that he really wanted to contribute and give something back to society. So he decided to volunteer his time with the Boy Scouts. (laughs) (laughs) He would be the worst Scoutmaster. He really would be. But he also is perhaps not the most self-aware guy in the world. Mm. But he got very excited about the idea. And he's like, hmm, I'm not very good with knots. That seems like that might be an issue. And then he saw a news article that came up. And he's like, well, if I can undo the greatest knot of all time, then surely I'll be able to undo any knot or retie any knot, and I will be the king of the Scoutmasters. I might change my name to the Scoutmaster Supreme. Wong, Wong, fetch me the Gordian knot. Mm. And Wong's like, what, what? And Steve was like, Well, I just read in the paper, they've finally unearthed Philip of Macedonia's tomb. Philip of Macedonia, of course, the father of Alexander the Great. And I think uh Steve just assumed that he would have sent the Clefton Twain, Gordian Knot, back to his dad as a present. As one does. Yeah, you know. You cut it you cut a big knot in half, you're gonna wanna send it back to your dad. Mm-hmm. You'd be pretty proud of yourself. Sure. So Wong teleported himself over to Greece and accompanied his buddy, Manolis Andronikis. Archaeologist extraordinaire? Yeah, the uh, the Greek archaeologist who unearthed Philip of Macedonia II's tomb. And uh, he poked around. He couldn't find the Gordian Knot. And he called ahead and was like, Hey, Steve, that thing that you sent me to do? And Steve was like, Yes, what was that? And so he's like, Okay, fine. Steve had completely forgotten that he wanted to be a scoutmaster of any kind let alone Scoutmaster Supreme. Hmm. So Wong went to beam himself home, but he was uh, running a little low on juice, so he was able to beam himself to England. And then he hopped on the Concorde, which had started running uh, regular services from New York to London and vice versa, and he uh, had a very luxurious jet ride home. Well, and that's that nice. was the Wong that was written. <laughs> well, good job, Wong. Good choice? Yeah. Hope it's a, a
1: business class or something. Yeah,
0: and honestly, it's for the best. I mean, Steve would not be a good scoutmaster. No?
1: No. Also, like, how are you going to learn how to untie a knot that's already cut?
0: It was not a well-thought-out plan on Runners. Steve's part. I think he also just kind of assumed he could look at the Gordian knot and then just be like, Oh, that's how you untie it. Yeah. Alexander was an idiot having to cut it in half like that. You just untie it. Do that! Yes, Steve. Not as easy as it looks. No, no. Thank you for joining us, dear listeners. Yes, thank you. We will be taking a brief break. Uh, I will be out of town next week. Unless, Corey, do you want to record a solo episode? Oh, that's okay. I think our listenership is used to a higher level
1: of quality (laughs) than I'll be able to produce.
0: Well, then we will be taking next week off. But we'll be back in a couple of weeks, and we will talk about... Tales of the Teen Titans, number 58. That sounds right. Yeah, man, we're really getting up there with that stuff. So, yeah, that'll be coming up pretty soon. The other thing that's coming up pretty soon is you getting into touch with us at ttwasteland.gmail.com. We're on Facebook and Instagram and the internet. Just type, tighten up the defense into your web browser and see what happens. That's T-I-T-A-N. I'll tell you one thing that's going to happen. After the first page and a half or so of our nonsense, you'll get a lot of information about a certain Tennessee football team. So, I don't know, maybe learn something about Marcus Mariota. He's a guy who plays football for the Tennessee Titans. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he used to play for Oregon in college. That was a nice time for him, I hope. Wow. I hope he enjoyed that experience. Was he a duck or a beaver? He was a duck. Oh, that's good. I Birds. guess birds. Hey, if you gotta pick a bird, a duck's a pretty good way to go. I guess. I got those corkscrew penises. Oh. Yeah. You had some recent bird trouble in your, in your travels abroad. Oh, they were jerks. Which birds were these? These were Icelandic birds, were they not? Yeah. Were they puffins? Cory, did a no. puffin attack you?
1: No, I oh. still think puffins are probably, they have to be cool. I had a poster of them as a child.
0: Yeah. Yep. There was a Ranger Rick uh, headline that was a picture of a puffin, and it just said, Puffin stuff. Ah. Pretty good. Pretty good. Look at that jerk. What's it called? Creia. Creia. An Arctic tern. An Arctic? You were attacked by Arctic terns. They pooped on you, did they not? Yeah.
1: I deftly donned the hood of my rain jacket.
0: Oh, good so job.
1: None of it got on my hair. But, yeah, I went to take a little stroll because I couldn't sleep because it was really sunny outside in the middle of the night. And uh,
0: there were these horses. Wait, what? So there were horses and birds working in concert. No, no, no. No, the horses were actually, they seemed pretty cool. Yeah, they always seem cool.
1: So I was like, oh, I'll just go check these horses out. And I don't know, maybe the birds had a nest near the horses or something. But next thing I know, there's like 20 Arctic terns, flying in a cloud, screaming and dive-bombing me. And pooping, a- and on, pooping on me. And pooping on me. And my friends I was with, they got out of there immediately as soon as this started to happen. They were running away, cackling with
0: laughter. Oh, <laughs> and man. And I was like, oh, what's up? Corey, I think that was a bait horse. Oh, I maybe. think that was the situation. I think the horses were working with the Arctic terns. That was a that was a it's, bait horse it's situation. It's like the peacock to the goose of my youth. Yes, for those of you who may not remember this story, in one of the greatest supervillain team-ups of all time, a peacock and a goose teamed up to attack Cory one time. The peacock made a big distraction for him, and then the goose came and bit your face through the chain-link fence. That's exactly what happened. And then the peacock charged? I'd, it was all blurry and traumatic after that. <laughs> oh, boy. They bite really hard when you're a kid. Yeah, they bite really hard no matter how old you are, Cory. hmm geese are no fucking good it's as i've often said people are the worst except for geese i hate birds yeah i really hope we don't find out david anthony craft is a bird i don't think it's It's possible. gonna make reading these comics a little difficult for me sure is i'll have to let go of a lot of stuff if he's not a bird why is he saying Ark! i think
1: it, i think you're right i think it was just like it's awkward
0: Oh, I don't like that either.
1: They're both bad, but if I have to go with one, I'm going to go with stupid slang over Birdman.
0: That's tough, but fair. If you would like to contribute to us monetarily, you can do so at patreon.com slash ttwasteland for all your giving us money needs. If you do so, you will get access to a whole bunch of bonus material and stuff, and it would make me happy. Very happy. Anyway, thanks so much for joining us, listeners. Ack! <laughs> and they knew it. And they knew it. I am going to you. Let's go. Spider Man in Legal Eagle, not starring Robert Redford and Deborah Winger and Daryl Hannah. A different legal eagle. Look, Spidey. It's Ralph G. Fake, the criminal lawyer with the power to change himself into Legal Eagle. The monster eagle at will. Legal Eagle. Stealing the Bill of Rights, that's criminal. Stealing the rights? Wrong! I'm destroying them, you soft humanitarian spider. My next eagle maneuver (laughs) is to take over the Supreme Court. A supreme step in getting my style of criminal law to rule the land. My
1: goodness, this is oddly prescient. My tingling spider sense tells me what the legal eagle's after next. The president's seat. But I know how to settle this case out of court. I'll just leave these here for the fake lawyer eagle to trip over. The White House.
0: I'm on it today. I'll be in it tomorrow. Me, Ralph G. Fake. Alias, Legal Eagle. And if they don't like it, let them sue me. Gotta fly. Uh Uh-oh. Look. What's this? (laughs) Look at all those delicious hostess cupcakes. Uh, I must have one. Just one. Oh, that creamed filling. The moist devil's food cake. Aha! Back to your true
1: self, fake... Trapped by your own false true nature, you're a disgrace to the profession you profess to be part of. Is there anything genuine about you, Fake?
0: Yes, only one thing. My love for luscious Hostess Cupcakes with Fuji icing! (laughs) For once you tell the truth, Fake. You'll get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Cupcakes. So, if he's a criminal lawyer, that would mean he defends criminals. Why would he want there to be less rights? Hmm. It makes his job harder. I'm, I, I don't know, man. I'm starting to think I like how Ralph you make, G. Uh, Fake didn't think this through.
1: You make Mary Jane sound like
0: Janice the Muppet. I like it. Oh, I hadn't even noticed <laughs> I was doing that. Must be subconscious. At the end. Ah. I think I had kind of a crush on both of them at one point or another. Oh, interesting. Yeah.